This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung peoples. The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia. My name is Gemma Purdy. In January 2021, a case that became known as Digital Nomad Gate gripped both Indonesia's social and conventional media channels and was also reported around the world. An American woman living in Bali was deported following a series of tweets in which she described her enviable and elevated lifestyle there, encouraging others to follow her. Amid a pandemic that had hit Bali's economy particularly hard, her tweets went viral and led to a public backlash, condemning her for a lack of cultural sensitivity and awareness of her own privilege. The woman was eventually deported for flouting immigration rules, although she claimed the true reasons were related to her sexuality and race. This is just one of many cases in recent years, which, due in great part to the prevalence of social media, have exposed or caught out foreigners in Indonesia for breaking laws and flouting social and cultural norms and sensitivities. These range from taking inappropriate photos at sacred sites to ignoring pandemic protocols and refusing to abide by laws and acknowledge the right of local authorities to enforce them. At the same time, in order to boost economies ravaged by the pandemic, government authorities have sought to attract more foreigners or so-called digital nomads or mobile professionals to live and work in Bali and elsewhere in the country. So who are these new expatriates and what is their motivation for coming to Indonesia? What can the history of expatriates in Indonesia tell us about these more recent conflicts related to cultural awareness and privilege? And do the recent tensions simply reflect the stresses brought by the pandemic? Or are we witnessing a real shift in how Indonesians perceive foreigners living and working in their country? To answer these questions and more, my guest today is Anne-Micah Fechter from the University of Sussex and author of Transnational Lives, Expatriates in Indonesia. Hello, Micah. Thank you so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia. Hi there. Micah, I wondered if we could start by talking about this term expatriate. So what or who does it describe in its contemporary usage? Who are we talking about? Well, that's a really interesting question. Thanks. I mean, I think it's really useful to differentiate whether people are using the term to describe themselves or whether academics and researchers are using the term um, in a sort of analytical way. So there has been research done more recently by Sarah Kunz, for example, who's got a book out with expatriates in the title where she traces the journey of this migration category. And um, there's also been resonance in popular news, for example, in the Guardian newspaper in the UK, entitled Why Are White People Expatriates While the Rest of Us Are Immigrants? So I think there's an enduring appeal of them as a shorthand, which has a particular kind of person in mind, often white, often privileged people who don't really like to think of themselves as migrants, but who we would probably now describe as 
privileged migrants or migrants who move on a very sort of different tier in terms of legality, socioeconomic status, in terms of expectations of them to integrate or liaise with local communities and so on. When I did my research, I started looking at expatriates because that's how people called themselves. But, you know, you quickly realize that these people have mostly moved for the purposes of work. So they could reasonably describe as labor migrants. And um, when I put that to them, nobody really liked it because the term migrant, especially labor migrant, is often described by governments, by migration management people, by policy people, as somebody who is under socioeconomic pressure, who comes from a less privileged, less educated background and so on. Hmm. What about the idea of skilled migrant? Not something that's going to appeal? I would say, if we want to really dive deep, I would say skilled migrant is a very, very misleading term for many reasons. So first of all, because skill does not equate with levels of income or privilege. You can be very skilled as something and very badly paid, which is why migration regimes often, you know, get that wrong. A classic example is a, a jazz musician's who are among the most highly skilled and most lowly paid for their work, um, for example, and who have difficulties migration, among many, many other you know, creative workers and other people. The other issue why I think skill is so problematic is that it doesn't necessarily translate from one context into the other. Yeah, so somebody who is highly skilled and qualified and certified in a certain context, after they move, their skills are not necessarily acknowledged, recognized or enable them to work. Yeah, classic. Well, one case, obviously, if you have people, for example, medical workers from Syria who are moving into Germany often face a lengthy process before they are able to practice because they have to go a whole other accreditation regime. And for example, expat women, as I used to call them, who moved to Indonesia, often also couldn't work because their qualifications as, you know, teachers or, or healthcare workers weren't recognized or acknowledged by the Indonesian government. Yeah. So you said the expatriates, sorry, you were explaining that didn't like to call themselves labor migrants. Is there also something about the permanency that that has? Like to, to say someone is a migrant, there's a sense of permanency. And is that different from when we think of expatriates or they think of themselves? Um, that's a really good question. I mean, I think migration research has really moved on in that it acknowledges that um simple time categories don't really capture people's mobility very well. Yeah, so Michaela Benson and um, Karen O'Reilly, for example, in their work on lifestyle migrants, do acknowledge that how long or how often you move is a very unreliable predictor of whether you, you identify as a migrant, for example. For example, British people moving to Spain um, may be going there and back several times a year or once or twice a year. So they are being described as lifestyle migrants, even though permanency isn't really part of it. Yeah. So and also migration or mobility can be open ended. You don't really know whether you've emigrated for good or, you know, whether your journey might take other forms. And often people migrate from one place to another to a third one. So Mm. with expatriates, I think they share sort of an uncertainty in the time frame with other migrants. So in that case, it doesn't make them stand out necessarily. Hmm. And so 
I want to talk about stereotypes in a moment, but I guess first of all, what, what can you tell us about the foreigners who are living and working in Indonesia, whether we call them expatriates or migrants? <laughs> Where are they from and what are they up to? And has this changed over time? Well, I think the biggest change, which I'm sure you know, all you know, people are aware of, is that we have seen a shift from the kind of, if you like, classic, conventional, so-called um, people who have been posted as part of a international assignment, often in the past with a very relatively generous work package. And, and remuneration package that includes, you know, used to include accommodation, flights home, sometimes school fees, you know, all kinds of perks. So very, very attractive packages. But, you know, it, that was very expensive. And, you know, as the labor market in Indonesia and in lots of other countries has changed, having an, a so-called posted worker or an expatriate isn't considered necessary because, you know, people, there's a much bigger talent pool that big companies can benefit from. At the same time, with the growth of location-independent work, I think you're seeing a very different group of people, younger. In the literature, they're sometimes called self-initiated expatriates or migrants in terms of they're not being posted by their existing employer, but they leave of their own accord, sometimes with work, that they can take with them, sometimes with the aim of finding work once they're inside, but a lot of that is then online. And so I think these these sort of, if you like, call them mobile workers or digital nomads, they constitute a very different demographic. Yeah. And so the, the self-initiated, okay, so they're propelled by what kind of motives? <laughs> um. All kinds. So, I mean, I've done a little bit of research with them, talking to people in Cambodia and in Thailand who had some, in Thailand especially, who had some of the, the early outposts, apart from Bali, of course, of, of digital nomads, as they, some of them like to call them. Often they try to escape or avoid what they consider sort of a very confining work life that ties them to a desk in a particular country and place. And instead, the idea was originally to exchange that for the ability to move to a location that is attractive in terms of lifestyle, for example, lower costs of living, flexibility of working hours. There's often this vision of, you know, sitting somewhere near a beach and nice temperatures with a good internet connection. And of course, the fallacy of that that I've noticed with some of our the people that I interviewed is that and what I observed in, in sort of co-working hubs, that this often turns into ridiculously long hours where they're competing in an international marketplace for sort of jobs in marketing, writing, sometimes data analysis with people who are located elsewhere in the world. And in some ways, actually, that they're having less privilege yeah, because of that. And they often have to deal with customers or clients or people who they teach in very different time zones which makes their work quite arduous, sometimes quite lonely and quite exhausting. So this promise of freedom that digital nomadism seems to entail doesn't always come true. Wow. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that. But yeah, we, we've all imagined ourselves with the laptop on the beach. <laughs> but it's not always true. Okay, so that's a stereotype that we have. And I guess there are those other ones that we have of, you know, the more classic expatriate that you've done your research amongst also the ones who are posted there and that's very much 
I guess it's it's almost it harks back to a, an almost a colonial image, isn't it? Oh. Can you talk about the similarities between, you know, that colonial expat and and those ones um, living that privileged migrant life? Oh, absolutely. I think in many ways it's it's not an imagined; it's a historical link. Where sort of in some countries with the experience of of colonization, and um, sort of colonial administrators were, anyways, the direct predecessors of contemporary work focused expatriates yeah so people who were literally posted there by the governments or went out there as, as traders commerce and so on and who lived relatively privileged lives compared to local people and um, in some ways after independence this kind of presence of people from former colonies who lived quite luxurious lives while their firms, you know, were still were still having a commercial presence in those, you know, new, in newly independent countries, the lifestyle of these expatriates was quite similar to those in colonial times in terms of living slightly separate lives, where sometimes mixing with local populations was frowned upon by the communities, not always, but to some extent, where people formed enclaves, which were kind of structured in racial gendered in ethnic along ethnic lines and i think this continuity was particularly strong you know there is always nuances but it was definitely observable among people in in indonesia in the 1990s i would say in early 2000s mm. as you speak about that you know it's ringing quite true it seems to me regarding the situation in indonesia at the moment what we have seen in bali in particular right with the number of so-called digital nomads or foreigners living in bali and they're particularly enclaved aren't they like tend to gather in those along those groups that you mentioned nationality yeah class they may they, they, they do and they don't i mean I would say with digital nomads, a lot of them pride themselves on sort of openness and being international. And I think that is true insofar as there's some mixing along sort of nationality, for example. But of course, in other ways, you know, there are whiteness is, is still in matters and is what characterizes quite a few of them. And the kind of the disconnect from local communities is definitely also there. I think the question has come a lot more to the fore because there are people, you know, as you know, in Thailand, there's loads of young people who are tech savvy and make their money through online work. And in some ways, it's not clear what digital nomads might bring if they set up in Thailand, for example. It may be beneficial for them, but it's not the case that they need to impart skills or knowledge to local digital workers, for example. You know, in fact, it sometimes goes the other way around. They can do with a bit of knowledge on how to, whatever, set up an e-commerce business within Thai regulations and so on. But I think importantly, sort of just because people get younger and more mobile and because they're not posted doesn't mean sort of colonial or or you know, ideas of superiority and, and privilege aren't still relevant. Yes, yeah, so people, even if they're younger, don't necessarily reflect on their whiteness, on their status, on where they are in the world, you know, what their rights to be there are and so on. So I think that lies behind some of them in the last two or three years, this kind of quite searing, honest discussions that have happened on social media around, you know, some of these cases in Bali. Yeah, no, I wanted to raise a case that you have 
written about, and I'll do that in a moment, but there's a few things going on. Digital Nomad Visa has been created by the Indonesian government. It was a really concerted campaign on on the part of the Minister for Tourism, you know, during the difficulty of the pandemic, right? It was really a concerted effort to encourage foreigners to come. You just mentioned it. What is it that Indonesia or Thailand or wherever, what did they get out of it? What is the benefit? Well, you know, I mean, I guess like, Most countries, you know, Indonesia is also looking to harness possible benefits of migrants coming in. Whether they're as as useful as they'd imagine is another matter. You know, so for example, in terms of spending power, of course, digital nomads, you know, pride themselves on living quite frugally. So um, what they bring to the economy might not be as much as, as expected. And I think the second issue that also came up in this other spat was about tax. You know, and I'm aware in the Thailand context, it's very much about tax and who pays tax where and how much, where should they pay it? And, you know, to what extent do governments benefit? If you think about it, why do Southeast Asian governments, you know, work on retirement visas? Well, because retirees may have money to spend. And that's where they encourage them to come in, even though that is not without friction either. But um, whether the digital nomads visa will pay off in the way that was hoped, I think is very much an open question. Yeah, because actually right now, as you've alluded to, what we are seeing is a lot of tension within the communities um, where these people are tending to gather, in particular in Bali, inevitably. wondered if you could tell us a little bit about this case of Kristen Gray, the US citizen who was deported from Bali in January 2021. After a series of tweets that she sent about her lifestyle in Bali sparked a backlash for what was described as her lack of cultural awareness around her tweets, which described her elevated lifestyle and very queer-friendly lifestyle in Bali. What was so interesting for you about that particular case? I think the lack of awareness of one's own positionality in the country where people have chosen to migrate to. You know, I mean, of course, race and ethnicity are discussed very differently in the U.S., but we are talking about intersectionality. Yeah, so if you're able to relocate from the US, for example, to a Southeast Asian country, the chances are that you are relatively privileged in socioeconomic-wise um, compared to a lot of people in, you know, living in the poorer areas of poorest, you know, strata in, in Bali, for example. And I think the arguments that apply there are not dissimilar from what we know about voluntourism. Yeah, so this... And young people from global north, middle income, middle class societies travel the world with a sense of entitlement for them to insert themselves in whatever social context they find, not having to worry much about their impact or, you know, focus on self-learning and what can bring to them. And eat, play, love tourism. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So... And I think voluntourism has very much come under fire for that reason. And, you know, the students that we teach at Sussex University, they often say, put my hands up. You know, I was a voluntarist once. I'm so sorry. I feel I'm, it was so wrong. <laughs> so, you know, there's very much mere culpa. I've done this. I shouldn't have done it. That's a different matter. But I think an awareness of where one is in in the global arena in terms of privilege and and whiteness or how that's understood, and that's not necessarily a matter of skin color, but also about of money. I think 
uh, increased awareness would be really useful to improve how these people interact or maybe even work and work and live together even temporarily and and what was the situation Kristen gray she was black right she's african-american yes but i think that's what i mean with lack of awareness black doesn't mean the same everywhere yeah so so i think you know the advice that was given to tourists to volunteerists and really should also be heeded by digital nomads is that to please you know take a check of who you are in your current context, but how that might play in the context where you're going into, you know, try and understand what the tensions and and ideas are in the place where you're going to, how they see you and why that may be the case. Have a think about where you stand with your privileges and be aware that sort of, you know, racial and ethnic positionalities may change radically when you go into a different place. Yeah, and, and the, the failure to acknowledge that then leads to these kind of tensions and, and really difficult conversations, let's put it mildly. Yeah, I mean, for Australians, we're very aware of many, many, many stories of foreigners behaving badly in Bali. That's kind of part of the part of the reason many people travel to Indonesia and holiday in Bali is because they can behave differently without seemingly any of the you know social constraints that they have at home um they can take far more risks they can yeah they have this this sense that that is possible and it seems most of the time they get away with it right and have got away with it but increasingly it seems like they're not and you know whether it's because it's being captured you know through social media their behavior is being exposed and we have seen that these incidents where foreigners are caught on video and it goes viral I think that the the law is actually coming into play a little bit more than it has previously. What do you think's going on? Do you think that there's just more foreigners? Do you think that they are behaving more disrespectfully or the Indonesians are just like, we've had enough or a combination? Well, I think what we're seeing is the rolling back of privilege, perhaps, in the sense that um, people from the global north have often considered the world their oyster in many ways. And um, I mean, we see that as researchers, um, sometimes not for such good reasons, but even academic researchers thought didn't think of themselves as tourists. They thought they sort of had a right to go somewhere else and, and research in governments, for example, in India, especially, but also Indonesia and other places are increasingly applying, so we say, stricter immigration rules and visa rules to these foreigners to the extent that you, yeah, myself included, my colleagues say, Oh, hang on. You know, I live in a country, for example, I'm based in the UK in the moment, which makes it very, very difficult for us to invite foreign researchers from the global south to us because anybody from a place of conflict is hard to even get a conference visa for the UK. So, you know, we're used to that, even though we completely disapprove of it. But now people are increasingly realizing that the world is not their playground and that other countries who they thought they could research, you know, reasonably easily are putting not a stop to it, but making it a lot more difficult. And I think this this kind of rolling back of privilege, this idea that no, people can't necessarily just, you know, roll up and set up and do what they like. I think that's a solitary reminder that the world isn't very open to most of its people, you know, but now even so-called expatriates or digital nomads are becoming more, in so many cases, painfully aware that moving around 
can have a lot of hurdles. And just having a Global North passport doesn't necessarily mean you can go everywhere. And there's a lesson in that, even though some of the reasons why that's being tightened, for example, to squash foreign possible descent or critical research aren't very good reasons. In the case of the digital nomads, there's probably only very few we see are facing consequences and like Kristen getting deported. But, you know, we know there are many, many and they have taken up the offer of the Indonesians hospitality, really, isn't it? You mentioned that, you know, most digital nomads, you know, they have a different approach and they kind of want to live, you know, and get to know the culture and the local communities. But are they still really in their expat bubble? They are in many ways. And I mean, from the interviews, you know, I've done in, in Cambodia, for example, you know, I wouldn't say I would feel sorry for them, but I was I was surprised just how precarious their lives were. Yes, they, as far as the small sample I looked at, the contact with um, people who lived, you know, local residents wasn't extensive, even though they often said, oh, I've come here, I've come to X to... to you know, do something, meet people and do culture. But, you know, the Cambodian case, when I interviewed some of them, they hadn't even been to see in the um, temples at, at Angkor Wat in the north of Cambodia, even though they'd been on site in that town for like weeks. Yeah, so there isn't sort of a living in a, in a bubble and some of these co-working spaces may serve as such a bubble. And their lives are very much online, which goes against the idea why they first left, as in to explore other peoples and cultures. So I would say there's, there's still a tendency to enclave, perhaps, but uh, not in a very luxurious way necessarily. Yeah, because what stops them now also partly from reaching out more is their own long hours that they've locked that they've got locked into, and and relatively insecure and uncertain working conditions. Yeah, yeah. I mean that is a completely different picture that you paint of the images that we have of the kind of lifestyle that these people might enjoy when they, when they travel there. But, you know, it does make sense that, you know, you would go to live somewhere where it is cheaper because you, you do not have, you have some advantage, but, but in your, in your home country, maybe not, not a great deal. So looking back at, at your work on expats in Indonesia, and you, you had some great material, which looked at the kind of self-help books or the guidebooks that this industry create. And what's really interesting is that someone like Kristen Gray, that was what she was doing at the time that she got in trouble, right? She was selling this idea of Bali being a wonderful place to live and work and why it was so great and, you know, ticking all these boxes and it was so cheap and whatever. And she fell on on the wrong side of, of opinion in Indonesia. But, you know, what you've seen there, these new versions of these guidebooks, are there similarities with the old ideas about what Indonesia is or who Indonesians are, I wondered? Well, I think, you know, the, the process that I find as an anthropologist I find interesting is the, you know, the process of rendering other cultures legible. Yeah, so whether that's olden colonial era guides to the local peoples or tribes, as, you know, they were called, um, or expatriate work manuals and, you know, written partly by psychologists, how Indonesians are, X, Y, Z, which are still around to sort of more to nomad style um, guides. I think what is problematic about all of them is not so much by whom they're written and in what context, but this effort to, to categorize, to make understandable to a certain public, to kind of control in the end people by creating knowledge. 
that is what's problematic. And I think, you know, in, in a time where Indonesians themselves are fairly mobile, you know, we have loads, you know, we've got a fair amount of Indonesian students at, at my university. They, they can travel, they can um, communicate. You know, there's other knowledges that are being created about each other. There's really no reason to rely on sort of, you know, these, these ready-made guides, which are often aimed at precisely the kind of people like maybe Kristen Gray, who look to follow in her wake, you know, which is also problematic. The other thing I would say is the context of producing these kind of guides. Well, if you're a digital nomad, how are you going to make your money? Yeah. Right. So uh, being in a different place, you somehow may look to kind of benefit from an imbalance in knowledge, in in income, in skill, or a, a differential. So Matt Hayden, I think, has called this geo-arbitrage. So by, if someone places themselves in Bali from the global north, they may feel that one way of gaining an income is benefiting from their locality or location to kind of produce knowledge about another and sell it back to the home communities. And, you know, given that other options may be limited, I don't know, you know, yoga teachers may be <laughs> plenty. There is enough there. So so how are you going to survive, you know, produce more content for people who may come in your way? So that's important, I think, to understand why these, under what conditions these guides are being produced, but also why producing knowledge about others from a privileged position is always problematic. I mean, it's so intriguing to me because, you know, particularly when we look at social media and, and you know, the, the rise of the kind of TikToker and, and vloggers. And interestingly, the Indonesian government, again, the same ministry, they, you know, that are promoting the digital visa, nomad visa, have kind of joined up with influences of all types that, you know, people would be aware of, domestic ones, but also foreigners living in Indonesia who are indeed doing that, who are serving to advertise and promote. And But clearly there's a particular narrative or a particular story that they need to be telling about what it is to live in Indonesia and, and enjoy everything. But, yeah, it's kind of it's an interesting tension because, you know, everyone's in on it in a way in this what you're what you're describing as problematic this effort to kind of produce knowledge or a knowledge or an idea yeah I mean I guess the question is who feels excluded you know who's being described and who doesn't have a voice and I mean I'm really glad to see that young people living in Bali do have a voice you know that's some of the leveling effects of, of social media I suppose you know which is accessible and and also, of course, which isn't seen by foreigners who are not on Indonesian language social media sites and so on. So it doesn't look like it's there for them. So the, the people can talk back a bit more now, which is really good. Whether they're intervening in sort of the Global North discourses about Bali is another matter, because you do need to sort of have a foot in both camps in order to do that effectively, I think. But, you know, I think some of the anger comes out of people living locally who thought they were just being ignored and categorized and patronized and and you know you can be a patronizing foreigner even if you think of yourself as marginalized because of race or ethnicity or sexuality in your home country you know that's this shifting positionality which is all part and parcel of of any kind of transnational mobility yes, i think patronized i think that that yeah you may have hit on something there that nerve that that uh yeah triggered something people had had enough uh, in a way in the last few months in those examples that we can think of 
I, I was going to ask, you know, is there a growing resentment? But I think that, yeah, what you've described is, you know, people just being sick of the of that sense of being patronised. But, you know, I love this idea too that, you know, you're talking about a rolling back of privilege and this may be being a moment. Is this a moment? Are we seeing <laughs> Are we seeing this going to continue and where does it take us? Well, I think... I think the question is what possibility are there for for better interactions? You know, I think a lot of people across the world actually quite like getting to know others who are very different from them. You know, so it just depends under what conditions this takes place and who, who benefits and how. And um what do you tell your students and, when they when they when they are so apologetic about being volunteers? Volunteers. <laughs> what do you tell them? Um do you say don't go? Well, I mean, it's a very good question. I mean, they basically say, well, maybe I just shouldn't go. I just should stay home and and do something locally. And many of many of them do. Yeah, that's definitely a first step. Um, I think it all depends on how it's done and how reciprocal it is. Yeah, and, and um, the other thing I find useful here is <laughs> is a notion of mobility privilege. Yeah, or, or even mobility justice. So, yes, uh, I would say, of course, you can travel to Indonesia, for example. Uh, but please pay attention to how this is happening. You know, are you being invited by an NGO or a local community or, you know, some some student friends who you know from your studies? How is that taking place? So when are you when you're there, what are you doing? You know, are you engaging? Are you learning from them? Are you collaborating on something? And it can be really beneficial because, you know, people from the global north, if they have other access to other social and financial networks that can benefit that they're wanting to do together with someone in Indonesia, great. I mean, we've just had a student of ours who worked with um, a thing called Speranda Perampuan in Sumatra on their invitation to work on um, gendered violence and its prevention. So she brought her skills as a social media communicator to their vision of what they needed to reduce to to tackle gender-based violence. So collaborations can be really beneficial if there's an awareness of how they can take place, what everybody brings to it, and and acting on invitation is always a good start. That sounds pretty good to me. I like those terms, especially around reciprocity. I think that in the past, you know, that that was lacking well, thank you so much, Micah, for joining us. It's, uh, we could talk a long time. It's fascinating. So I'll put some links to your work so people can go and read up some more. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot for having me. Bye. That was Ad Micah Fechter from the University of Sussex. We'll put a link to Ad Micah's publications on the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Talking Indonesia will return on the 20th of June. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode, or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.